0: Welcome to the public rally, and Happy New Year. The latter salutation could be met with suspicion. Personal well wishes notwithstanding, can anyone in all honesty offer 2022 in a positive context to a nation still in the throes of COVID and its variants? And it seems increasingly that while the presidency of Donald Trump may have been a one-off, the culture behind it that had been long dormant has now taken a seat at the table alongside normalcy. The tangible result remained the January 6th riots on Capitol Hill that at the time of this broadcast will soon mark its first anniversary. But beyond unceremoniously putting an end to more than two centuries of peaceful transfer of power, January 6th, the have provided a tragic barometer as to the current state of America's democratic norms. My first guest to discuss the current state of American democracy is political scientist, Professor James Lindley Wilson. Wilson is assistant professor at the University of Chicago's Department of Political Science. Professor James Lindley Wilson, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank hey, you. It's great to be here. Since part of the American civic virtue is based on equality, I I wanna begin by having you define, uh, based on your work, uh, equality for our listeners.
1: I think the important kind of equality fundamentally is a kind of social standing or social relationship with the people around you, including your fellow citizens. I think most of us understand Uh, when we're being treated like an inferior, or when someone is expecting us to treat them like a better or a superior. Uh, We have lots of historical examples of like that, you know, what it's like to be in a lower class, uh, a lower caste, or something like a slave or a serf. And again, I think we often understand what it's like to be treated as an unequal in Uh, intimate relationships or by people who we think of as friends or would like to be friends or by our bosses at work and so the ideal of equality uh, with other citizens is to be confident that you are going to be treated like an equal, a social equal um, in your day-to-day life and not to have to worry that you're going to be uh, treated like an inferior or that people will expect you to act like an inferior.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because in our in our in our contemporary discourse, the notion of equality has gotten truncated um, into some form of socialism that that lives next door to Joseph Stalin, and I and I wonder how, how do you negotiate that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's right. I, it has been truncated and narrowed, and I think. Um, the way philosophers try to respond to that is to kind of go back to basics and say it's easy when we talk about equality that sounds mathematical. And so it seems so easy to think, oh, it must mean equality of wealth or stuff, you know, resources. Um, but instead, we need to push back and say equality fundamentally, the kind we ought to care about, is a kind of social relationship. And that may require. Institutions and policies that maybe put a limit on, on inequalities of wealth or inequalities of power, but it's not the same thing as what you're rightly calling a truncated view that you know social equality just is everyone is exactly the same and has the same stuff.
0: Well, with that said, um, do you uh, could you offer a definition of liberty as
1: well? <laughs> Uh, that'll get me in trouble with philosophers, but I think um, I think there's a simple version that does matter, which is something like, to what extent can you do what you want without people interfering with you? That's not necessarily the whole of liberty, but I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And again, it's not just can you do what you want without the government interfering with you, but can you do what you want without um, other people in society, other private citizens or corporations interfering with you. Another important aspect of liberty is the um, idea that, you, that other people cannot arbitrarily interfere with you. No one has power over you in the specific sense that they can just force you to do things or not do things if they happen to want to. And so a kind of limitation on those kinds of inequalities of power in particular are an important part of liberty.
0: Well, again, we we we, we, we talk about um, sort of the, the those no, the notion of equality being truncated. I mean, with the advent of COVID, we might also add that the liberty um, has been truncated, or dare I say, oversimplified.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that um, people will resent any kind of restriction, whether by the government or by private corporations that are telling you to mask up in their stores and say, uh, you know, this is an unjust infringement of my liberty. And I think they are correct that when you want to do something and you can't and the government or some powerful corporation is telling you you can't, there is some sense in which you have less freedom than you would if you could just do whatever you want. But that doesn't mean it's wrong or that it's a kind of important violation of your freedom because most of these COVID restrictions are great examples of your restriction, your your freedom to do what you want is being restricted to kind of ensure everyone else's freedom, freedom that they're not going to be inadvertently um, infected by you uh, and seriously harmed. And so there's one question of, is this an issue where freedom is involved? And I would say yes, but then the more important question is, you know, is this a justified restriction of freedom? Is it something that's increasing everyone's freedom overall?
0: And, and that, but doesn't that also go to both in terms of liberty and equality that, that neither is an absolute proposition that there are, there are some organic constraints on liberty and equality, because if you had absolute liberty Um, that would ultimately lead to anarchy, and if you had absolute equality, we'd all be just automatons.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and so that's why I think we need to think to ourselves, what is the kind of liberty that matters? What is the kind of restriction on liberty that is justified or good? And the same with equality, you know, some kinds of equality just don't matter, or maybe even are bad, as you're suggesting, Whereas we need to think about what is the kind of equality that's that's good or that, that matters that we should be pursuing.
0: Now, now, now uh, Professor, when you consider America's Democratic-Republican form of government, is there, in your view, a correlation between the strength, the current strength of our system uh, and its weakest link. Like, for example, um, if we looked at measuring the strength of our democracy by, let's say, a a presidential election where we had 40% voter turnout. So there's that correlation between the strength of democracy versus its weakest link. And and, and help me flesh that out if I'm not... Yeah,
1: great. Um, I mean, when we're thinking about I I think there are many weak links in our democratic system It's wonderful. Many parts of it are wonderful and innovative, but it has many weak links. Um, When we're talking about participation specifically, I do think we need to think about what is it that we are concerned about? Because you could imagine a a kind of ideal society where a lot of people don't vote because they're just pretty happy with how things are. And they're just confident that those 40% that are voting are representing them well at the polls. And so it's just not important for them to vote. But I think we all know that's not the situation in the United States, and that's not why we have low participation. At least to a great extent, the reason we have low participation is because uh, a lot of citizens don't get very good educational opportunities. So they don't really have an opportunity to kind of learn what kinds of political participation might actually help me or the people that I care about. Uh, There are things that make voting difficult and costly for people so they want to vote and they understand whom they want to vote for, but they just don't have the time and money and resources to go and do it, and so on and so forth. And so I think um, many of the aspects of the way we collectively participate in democracy reflect these underlying serious problems and inequalities that, that do reveal weaknesses in the system.
0: You you mentioned there were some other weaknesses you you care you care to uh mention a couple of those if you don't mind?
1: Sure, uh, quickly and we can talk about um the more if you would like. I mean the most serious one right now is that I think a lot of people are fundamentally not very committed to democracy, you know. And, and I mean I don't mean to say these are evil people. It's understandable why you might say I'm willing to give up democracy so that the right policies can be in place or the right leaders can be in place. But um, that's tempting for all of us on all sides of the political spectrum. But I think what a democracy needs to function is everyone to be committed to the idea that, you know what really matters is maintaining the democracy, um, and I'm willing to do that even if the people that I don't like get into power and the policies that I don't like get implemented. And I think that is seriously fraying in the us right now. More institutionally, I think we have um, a system that empowers, Powerful minorities. Um, That is, that we have a system like the Senate, um, like the power of the Supreme Court. um, Sorry about that. Um, The the, um, gerrymandering in the states and in the House of Representatives that disempowers ordinary majorities of citizens um, from fairly exercising their power. And um, that's a serious problem. It's not that. A democracy always means the majority always gets their way. But the particular way in which we empower minorities institutionally tends to empower uh, the people that already have a lot of power.
0: The founders in in creating this sort of Democratic-Republican hybrid were concerned that you could have a majority that would just have its way. So they put in place a minority rights. Have we sort of crossed that threshold? We're now minorities are emboldened in a way maybe beyond um,
1: the founder's imagination. I think we have. I mean, I think we, we crossed that line in 1787 probably, not, not to criticize them particularly, they had a difficult political scenario they had to deal with. But um, because I think, again, the problem is not so much just minorities, do they need protection? Of course, many of them do. And historically, of course, racial and religious minorities are kind of at the top of the list. It's that the way in which our system was constructed, I think not necessarily intentionally, but how it's played out has been that the minorities that are protected by unequal representation in the Senate, by who tends to get on the Supreme Court and how they tend to judge um, by various other factors, um, tend to be minorities that already are, are um, more empowered than the rest of their citizens. So it's. They tend to be institutional features that empower white citizens, that empower richer citizens, and so on. And that's a problem. It's not that we're trying to protect minorities, it's that we have the effect of protecting the wrong minorities in the sense that they're minorities that already have a lot of power, not that they're bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, no offense to,
0: to Harvard. I, I think we, we both attended that university. No offense to Harvard. Uh, or Yale for that matter. But I I, I would be, you know, did you know that Sandra Day O'Connor was the last Supreme Court justice not to attend one of those institutions of higher
1: learning? And she went to that paltry institution called Stanford, Stanford Law, so. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And I mean, it's not just the Supreme Court. There's a lot of good research on who gets into the House of Representatives and the Senate. And while they're not all Harvard and Yale grads, in general, they're much wealthier than the average American population. They go to more elite educational institutions. They come from a narrower band of job and career backgrounds. And so so the problem you're alluding to is a problem in the whole federal government.
0: Well, well, just staying with that for just a minute, explain to our listeners, why is that? I mean, someone says, well, you know, why I like Joe, Joe says what I want to hear, although Joe may be you know, in a different strata than I am. Like, let's take Jack Kennedy. Uh, I I, I mean, why is that problematic for democracy long term? Maybe not immediate, but explain long term why that may be problematic in a a democratic
1: republic. It's a good question because for any given individual, it might not be a problem. You know, a lot of us um, will think, well, who, who are among the best presidents to you know, empower common people, you think, oh, maybe Franklin Roosevelt, very aristocratic, very rich individual. The problem is, again, as you were alluding to about the long term, this kind of systematic problem where it's those rich aristocratic individuals, you know, the lawyers and the people that went to fancy schools that um, are a huge majority of the people with power, the representatives and the presidents and the judges, because then the concern is that the perspectives of different kinds of people, often people with fewer resources or people from historically disadvantaged groups, those perspectives are not getting represented as well um, in the highest levels of government. Again, it's not to say that say a rich white man can never represent the interests of someone very different from him. The concern is just when a certain segment of society or a couple segments of society or almost all of our leaders then we have very good reason to think that a lot of these um, different perspectives are not being fully and equally represented. Former Vice President
0: Dan Coyle had announced he was going to run for president. And the question was, could he raise the requisite $20 million entry fee to run for president? I, I mean, now, I mean, we're, we're, we're encroaching on, I mean, we've normalized a billion dollars for a presidential election. I mean, that seems to
1: really limit uh, who can be president of the United States. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, You know, the the political science research suggests it's not always the case that people that raise the most money win. There really are limits to how much money can buy you elections. But I think the way you framed it was exactly right. It's that uh, what money does is buy you the entry ticket, you know, gives you the chance Uh, to stay in a campaign for a long time, a chance to get media exposure, a chance to try to persuade enough voters that you can kind of stay in the race. And if you don't have a lot of money, you can't do that, even for smaller races, like just an individual House of Representatives seat or a state legislative seat. And I think that's a problem, both in the sense that it will often mean richer people who are very well connected are are the only candidates we're going to get, but also that It's the people that billionaires like, the people that, um, if you can just donate individually $100 million to this campaign, that person that you like, you the billionaire like, is going to get much more of a shot to persuade the citizenry than some ordinary person who isn't friends with billionaires.
0: And I know you've taught a a course entitled uh, The Politics of Empire. Is America, in your view, an empire, and if so, why?
1: We probably have aspects of empire formally. I mean, when you think about our relationship with Guam or the Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico, I mean, they are not fully incorporated into what we think of as American democracy. Um, And that may be... uh, Its own kind of imperial problem, even in Hawaii, which of course does have sort of standard democratic rights. um, There are questions about whether there's an imperialist relationship between um, Anglo-America and the native Hawaiians. Um, Often when we think about American empire, of course, we think more informally, you know, the US exercises a lot of influence abroad, um, often through military force or the threat of force, uh, maybe through uh, a lot of economic pressure You know, I think the question for me is less, does that count as an empire? Because that's just gonna bog us down in a what is an empire uh, Mm -hmm. question, which which is interesting, but maybe not the core of what we wanna know, which is just, um, are we treating foreign peoples unfairly or badly or imperially in some kind of way that we object? and you know, I don't want to be all negative about America. I think we do a lot of great things um, internationally, but I think there's no question we also engage in a lot of abuses, just like other big, powerful nations have throughout history. And so, kind of sharp, critical questions about that, those um, foreign engagements and military engagements are definitely worth asking.
0: No, I think you make a, you make a good point. If, if we if we were to hold up the American narrative, would say that of the British Empire, then America probably would not qualify um as an empire. But if you think of America post the Louisiana Purchase and the impact of westward expansion, then we've got some empire characteristics there, some imperialistic characteristics. And it, it does not and some of our legislation bears that out. Would that be accurate?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you asked Native American nations past and present, you know, t- does the U.S. have a characteristic of an empire? They would say, well, obviously, yes. Um, and, and you're right. That's not just a matter of 1803. I mean, those, some of those features persist today. You know. There's a lot of Americans that would recoil at the notion
0: of America being considered an empire. And I, and I wonder, could you
1: speak to that? yeah I think that's understandable, because I think if you recoil your prop it's probably because you're thinking like, Well, hold on a second, you know, we're not like the Roman Empire, we're not like the British Empire. There's a lot of things that are good and you know relatively equal, relatively fair about American society. and it seems like when someone like me comes along and says, "Oh, well, we have the characteristics of an empire, it seems like I'm denying all of those good things, and I'm not, And so I think the important thing is to th- realize. Um, you know, countries are complicated, societies are complicated. And so it can be true both that there's a lot of goodness and fairness in American society, and that it has unfair characteristics, including ones we would consider imperial. Um, And that's just a kind of mature way of thinking about society that it's easy to think when you hear someone criticizing that they have the attitude of everything is bad this whole society or country is rotten. And I'm sure some people think that, but that's not necessarily what it means. It may mean, yes, there's a lot of great things about our society that deserve celebration, but you know, a mature person shouldn't have that blind them to the much more problematic and darker parts of the society that need fixing. You know, when the Declaration of Independence
0: declared, in my view, America's civic virtue would rest on liberty and equality, in theory, but would be a nation based on a truncated definition of liberty and therefore inequality based on the original target audience. Would it be fair to suggest that American ideals have since that moment been in sort of a perennial tension with itself?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. One way people say it is, well, the, the theory was in tension with the practice, You know, the theory of equality and the declaration of the practice of slavery and disenfranchisement of women and so on. Um, but I, I, I like the way you put it as a kind of the theory itself was in some tension because I mean, I think it's fair to say that at least the reigning theory for a long time was that equality and liberty were important but only within a certain subset of people and that subset expanded and shrank over time. Um, you know, it's not always expanding, but, but yeah, the, the theory itself needs to be worked out the, that the citizens need to collectively think and, and the people who were denied citizenship needed to kind of work out, well, who is owed equal treatment? Who is owed freedom and liberty? Um, and that's been a you know, huge part of the American narrative. Do
0: you think that some people harbor in their minds, if so if we have marriage equality uh, and I'm not gay or lesbian, what does that mean for me? Am I losing some equality? Do you, do you think that's which, is, which has never been the case. The expansion of equality is never, equality is not a finite resource. And so do you think that's still at play in some of the, the expansion of equality?
1: Yeah, I do. I think that um, while I agree with you that you know, equality properly understood is not finite and something that everyone can share, particular examples of it often seem threatening to others. And, you know, the cynical version is just, well, you know, equality is threatened to the people that wrongly have too much. And and that's true. So some people are threatened because they are threatened that they have what they shouldn't and it's gonna be taken away by various kinds of reforms. But a lot of um, resistance to equality, I think, is based on this idea that, you know, something like marriage equality, okay, it doesn't stop me, a heterosexual, from getting married, but I, I think it's wrong. You know, the voter is thinking, or the citizen is thinking, and it's maybe a signal that people like me, people with a certain kind of conservative religious outlook, let's say, are um, in decline. We're losing power. And so I think that kind of social threat of, we have a certain amount of power that we think we're entitled to and we're losing it is often in the background of anxieties about expanding equality and freedom.
0: All right, we've reached the point uh, of the the conversation. We're gonna have a little fun now. We're gonna cause you to to imagine. So I'd like for you, you to imagine Uh, the House Select Committee investigating January 6th riots, almost a year ago. And they called two expert witnesses to assess America's democratic norms. All right. You you, you with me so far? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the first expert witness, and we're going to have you tell us what this expert witness is going to say. So we're asking about America's current democratic norms and the first expert witness we're calling is Aristotle.
1: Go ahead. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> okay. So the first thing I'll say is, as Aristotle is that you shouldn't even be trying to have a democracy in the first place. What you really want is the rule of um, expert elites and your job in society is to have there be as many expert elites as possible and rules shared by them. But since you've called me to ask a question about America's democratic norms, and I, Aristotle, am a kind of political scientist who studies all kinds of regimes, including the ones I don't like, um, I'll tell you. And the important thing is that elections are not fundamentally democratic in the true sense, in the true sense of having ordinary people rule. Elections are oligarchic, they promote the rule by a few, and it's both because of the ordinary fact that when we elect people, we only elect a few people, a couple hundred people in the Congress. But it's also because the sociologically, the way elections work is that they tend to advantage and tend to choose uh, the rich people, the people who are already social elites. And those social elites do not rule for the benefit of um, the general population, the demos, the people. And so. If you want a real democracy, I as Aristotle am telling you, you need to incorporate into your political decision-making procedures that elevate into real decision-making power many more ordinary citizens. The way we do that in ancient Greece is by lottery selection. We just randomly choose citizens to kind of serve for a year or two in various offices. There may be more modern versions of that, but whatever the specific institutional choice what you need to think about if you want to be a real democracy, to have real equality among the citizens is, not that I'm saying you should, is uh, more ordinary people in making real decisions in government.
0: Thank you, Mr. Aristotle. Now, uh, the committee would now like to call uh, uh, Emmanuel Kant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow, all right. Um, I'll try not to be too weird. The, um,
0: you can't help, it's unavoidable, I'm sorry. It's unavoidable.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, okay, so I'm going to skate quickly by my, my really problematic scientific racism and say that um, if you're asking me about democratic norms, I agree with you. So I the way I put it is that we should have republican constitutions, and so what that means is that you know, we need to have institutions that basically equally empower all citizens. Um, so something like a real democracy, in the sense of real meaning here, each citizen has equal share of control over the lawmaking. Um, and that's compatible, unlike my colleague Aristotle, I think that's compatible with elections and having a selected legislature. You don't have to have lottery representation, but you would need to have an electoral system in which um, we really can say all citizens are equally participating, equally deciding um, who's in charge of the legislature. We need a firm separation of powers between the legislature and the executive to have a certain kind of independence in how the law is being executed. And then um, a little more radically, we need to orient ourselves to establishing what I call a cosmopolitan constitution a constitution, a Republican organization of government between all of the states in the world. So that means we should encourage other states to be Republican themselves, and we should form a kind of, not a world state, but a kind of common organization, international organization or government that regulates our affairs together. And so it's not fundamentally Republican or what you would call democratic, to kind of go it alone in world affairs, even if you're trying to do the right thing all the time. You need to be sharing your decision-making power uh, with other republics.
0: Uh, so what I glean from uh, our two uh, expert witnesses is one, a form of, in a contemporary sense, what we may call term limits in, in, in some way. From uh, Mr. Kant, I get that, maybe, maybe a little isolationism is, is, is,
1: uh, can work. (laughs) Uh, I think for the the Aristotelian point is less about how long it's true that if you're constantly rotating between citizens, that sort of necessarily requires term limits, but the objection is the, the diagnosis of the problem is not fundamentally that some senators been around for 30 years. It's that in aggregate, the people in the Senate and the house are only drawn from one small elite segment of society, um, and Kant, Kant is very anti-isolationist. I mean, he he really thinks you need to like be part. If you're a good republic, you've got to be part of international organizations, and you know, let the small states have some control over what you're doing, even though they don't really have the power to force you and that sort of thing.
0: Professor James Wilson, I, I want to thank you so much uh, for, for for joining me today on the public morality. We really enjoyed. Uh, your thoughts. I've had a great time, Byron. Thank you so much for having me. Stay tuned to the public morality as I speak with Harvard professor Daniel Carpenter. That's coming up on the public morality. Welcome back. I continue my conversation on America's civic virtue with Professor Daniel Carpenter. Professor Carpenter directs Radcliffe's social science program and he is the Ali Freed Professor of Government in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. He is also the author of Democracy by Petition, Popular Politics and Transformation, 1790 to 1870. Professor Daniel Carpenter, welcome to The Public Morality.
2: Uh, Thank you very much, Byron. It's an honor to be here.
0: I would like to begin uh, by having you define American civic virtue Why is a component key to sustaining this democratic, republican form of government in your view?
2: Well, uh, a republic, and I I think for the most part, um, what most of us call a democracy or a representative democracy, depends uh, heavily um, uh, upon the judgments and behavior of its citizens. And if those citizens are corrupt, and I don't mean corrupt just in the sense of taking bribes, although that's one possible form, um, but uh, devoted so much to their private interests that they neglect the public, you know, unwilling to tolerate people of other creeds, other beliefs, other races, genders, uh, 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 you know, other, other uh you know, human, um, other human beings, uh, then a Republic will fall apart. Either it will basically, uh, turn inward and there won't be enough commitment to, uh, the public good or, or I should say, and, or, uh, there will be factionalism, excessive factionalism, where people become more, um, dedicated to their, uh their organization their preferred party uh than to the country um and it's also possible that uh they will um, injure each other and and uh and I, I mean that in the broadest sense of the term um and and especially trample upon uh minorities of all forms um and so i think that that notion of of virtue a commitment to the public, to the public sphere, and to the public, including all of its people, the, the, the people regarded as a plural entity, uh, 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 as in you know, the, the many in one, you know, a pluribus unum, uh, that is the, the notion of civic virtue that, that I subscribe to and that I teach.
0: Uh, if you have a country, and specifically we're talking about United States right now, at least on paper, is committed to liberty and equality taken from the Declaration of Independence. But in practice, the initial commitments extend almost exclusively to a single group based on class, gender, and race. Have you not laid a foundation for, in my view, ongoing uh, an ongoing state uh, a state of tension? hence the civil war and other movements galvanized around those that were left out of those initial uh, commitments. So, so from, from your perspective, sir, have we reconciled that initial incongruence?
2: I would say the, the, the answer to me is no, that we have not, that does not mean that we have not made progress. Um, you're, you're, you're exactly right that, um, there were, um, Uh, commitments not made. And, you know, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King talked about these kinds of things, the kinds of um, debts not paid, um, commitments not upheld from the revolution, uh, from uh, the constitutional founding era uh, that have affected, you know, many of the people who've lived under the weight of American government. Um, whether at the state or or, or federal level, where, where I would where I would say I think it's a bit more complicated is that you know for its time, you know the early American Republic and the early American republics, because I think a lot of the most important government government um, structures were at the state level, um, you know offered uh, sometimes more freedom than uh, comparable societies in uh, Europe. Or in the Spanish Empire and things like that. Um, And so, you know, one of the reasons we all turn back to, um, uh, you know, Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, even though we've never fully lived up to it. Now, there's another part of your question that I think is about legacies, which is, isn't it the case that a society that was, you know, not only at peace with things like slavery and Native American dispossession and and gender hierarchy, but at some level founded on those things. Um, how you know how can a society founded upon those things ultimately become you know equal? And I think the the answer to that is with with great difficulty. Um, and and again, I want to suggest that in the in the in the deep senses of of Jefferson's uh, aspirations, as as uh, articulated in the Declaration, uh, we're not there yet. But but one thing, you know, so two things I, I would say is that um, you know the the imperf the deeply deeply imperfect union uh, of uh, the Constitution um, and the early uh, United States. Um, did, I mean, it was, it was at some level, a constitutional failure, what happened in the Civil War. Um, and the reason that that should be obvious is among the many reasons that should be obvious is not merely that it was the bloodiest war on American soil, not merely that it took, uh, uh, that war to end slavery and not a consensual political process, Um, But also that we had to add three amendments, at least, to the Constitution uh, after the conclusion of that war, 13th, 14th, and 15th, to basically articulate a new constitutional meaning that at some level was much truer to Jefferson's ideals than, than the Constitution of 1789 was.
0: Because of the way the country was founded, some 200, and I'm I'm starting with the ratification of the uh, Constitution, 1787. In that sense, has there been, in your view, an ongoing implicit bias? Uh, implicit bias in that as the country becomes more diverse, as as people of color and women are saying, are we not included in that? We the people, order to make a more perfect union. There's an implicit bias that wants to push back. That no, that's not what this country was originally for.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's many forms of implicit bias. Let, let's put some cards on the table that uh, undoubtedly, you know, you and your listeners know about. In part, the the vitriol that one sees in the American um, women's rights and and woman suffrage movement. Uh, from the 1860s through, say, 1920, um, is the uh, resentment that many uh, white uh, women feel, not just in the South, but in the North, at the, at the fact that uh, Black men got the right to vote before they did um and it's obviously a little heterogeneous story because women get the right to vote in some western states before they get the right to vote in the east and things like that so many women do have the right to vote before 1920 um but this is uh you know this is a concern that that kind of resentment um uh uh fueled the women's rights movement, which did important things, which did important liberating things, but what we need to be honest that part of that was was a racial animus, uh, and there's really no doubt about that. In my work on petitioning, I've seen a lot of um, uh, petitions for the woman's suffrage amendment uh, in the early uh, 1900s that were explicitly uh, making the argument that no, we need you know white women's Uh, votes to counteract uh the nefarious as, as they put it the nefarious effects of of black men's votes uh and i think it's fascinating to kind of look at some of those stages when european immigrants who we would today regard as oh these are white folks um were when they uh you know first arrived or first generation or so you know irish german uh uh um Italians, Italian, uh, yeah. Jews, others uh, were were not considered white. Um, they almost had to fight for that, um, and I think that's an important process too of what you're talking about.
0: No, lot, lots of signs and uh, advertisers during that time period you're referring to would say things like, you know, help wanted. Uh, Italians need not apply, or Germans need not apply. So there was a lot of that going on, right, at, at, at that time. Well, Professor Carpenter, take us through a little bit of your latest book, "Democracy by Petition: Popular Politics and Transformation." Where do you place that work, not only historically, but but in this present sort of zeitgeist that we're wrestling with?
2: Well, thanks. Yeah, um, uh, this is a this is a book about um, how people from you know the early eighteen hundreds, seventeen ninety through eighteen seventy probably did more petitioning than at any other time in American history, um, especially the 1820s through the 1850s. And, um, you know, let me just first say that when you talk about some of the, you know, the unkept promises of the Constitution and of the Declaration of Independence, Many of those petitioners, and they were, you know, city artisans and and free blacks in places like Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore. Uh, They were Native Americans, the Cherokee, the Seneca, uh, the Ojibwa. Uh, Many of them, I, I talk a little bit about petitioning in Canada, things like that. Many of the people who called for greater equality. And making our republic a more equal republic, uh, uh, a republic truly governed by the people, a democratic republic, many of those people were petitioners, and many of them um, uh, had their greatest voice through petitioning, in part because either they didn't vote or their votes weren't very pivotal. Um, and, and so a big argument, uh, as the title suggests, is that our democracy came about, in part, not certainly not entirely, by petitioning. Uh, we see petitioning at the origins of the Whig Party. We see petitioning at the origins of the earliest anti-slavery parties, like the Liberty Party, and thus the Republican Party. Uh, we see petitioning uh, at the origins of some of the most um, extensive and well-organized anti-slavery societies, national and local. Uh, we see petitioning um, that allowed Native Americans who were under immense uh, duress from the removal activities of the federal government um, to at least, uh, you know, capture a part of the political agenda and to open a debate about these things that, that really weren't being debated before. And in many cases, that didn't, did not did not did nothing to stem the tide of their losses. But in some small respects, as I argue in one of the chapters, of the Seneca in New York, uh, Ojibwa in Ottawa and Michigan, uh, and some Canadian tribes actually allowed them to hold on to lands that were it not for that petitioning, probably they, they would be removed from today, erased from. Uh, women. Um, you know, as they begin to organize uh, and call for not just suffrage rights, but the ability to own property in a marriage, um, which which happened, uh, you know, the first important statute uh, for that is in Massachusetts in the 1850s. That organization happens not because they have votes, but because they're they're able to petition. Um, We even had feudal tenure. We had, you know, manorial land tenure that looked like, you know, old regime France in New York. Uh, in this country until the 1860s. And it was largely a petitioning campaign uh, along with some um, protests, some violence, and some ingenious legal strategy that allowed uh, tenant farmers to basically overturn that system. So the first thing I'd, I'd say about the book is that it talks about the rise of our Democratic Republic. In part, you know when we think about democracy, we think about voting as we should. Um, But we forget that there is another important technology of citizen action that involves a direct communication of citizens with office holders, and that's petitioning. And we often forget that aspect. Um, I think one thing I would say in terms of what it means today um, I mean, one of the things I'm very clear, this, you know, this book ends in 1870. And, and at some level, um, you know, the, that kind of heady petitioning culture that I write about, we're never going to get back. Um, we don't petition as much as we used to the online petitions that, you know, you or I or your readers or your listeners, excuse me, might sign um, they usually just go into the ether, um, you know, we can petition Uh, you know, a president to overturn a policy, but usually that petition just goes out there into the internet. It actually isn't necessarily delivered to the president or to Congress or to a particular individual. And unlike the 19th century, the period that I write, Congress and the president aren't expected to respond to those petitions. Sometimes they will, but often, most often they won't. And I think one of the things that we've lost, and you know, I, I want to be very clear that you know, the 19th century was a, a brutal time uh, for uh, most people on this planet. Uh, average life expectancy was the high 30s, low 40s. Uh, slavery, dispossession, uh, subjugation of women, subjugation of many working class people, uh, things like that. Um, religious minorities: Mormons, Catholics, Jews. Um, but, uh, what they did have was a system where when you petitioned, anybody could take a petition to Congress and Congress or any state legislature or any municipal council or any governor would be expected to respond and usually did. And, you know, what I, what I've done for some people in my courses in recent years is to compare the first say hundred days of a new Congress in say the 1830s. With uh, or the or say the eighteen twenties with a, you know the first hundred days of a new Congress in the twenty tens or twenty twenties, and they would spend you know most of the first month of a new session of Congress, reading petitions that came in from constituents, and referring them to committees or referring them to members or discussing them on the floor, and they did so much of this that people thought it was inefficient. Um, and, you know, writers, uh, quickly said, well, yes, it's inefficient, but that's what justice requires. That's what, you know, a a true Republic, uh, requires is that, that the people are heard and that their complaints are answered. Even if that answer is not satisfactory to them, you look at the first hundred days of any session now, and you look at how members spend their time, they're fundraising, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, maybe what we want them to do is to you know enact important legislation and they you know get their majority right, get the committees, things like that. But there is kind of a you know the bone and sinew of the body politic, the that connective tissue that 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 not just the votes of the people, but the voices of the people, the complaints of the people, the trauma of the people, and how that's getting reflected or not in our. Legislative and representative institutions seems to me a, a you know a big problem with our institutions and our culture.
0: I have uh, we had uh, Professor uh, uh, James Wilson from the University of Chicago on earlier in the broadcast. Oh, great! And we had some fun with him, so we're gonna have the same fun with you. All right, you ready?
2: Okay, sure.
0: All right, I want you to imagine. That um, we're at the jet, the House Select Committee on on the January sixth riots, <laughs> and they call for expert testimony, and um, and with um, one of the people that uh, Professor Wilson had to speak for was Emmanuel Kant. You, uh, sir, you mentioned him earlier, but the expert testimony I'm asking you to speak for is Montesquieu. So. <laughs> How are we doing with our current assessment of our American democratic norms? Uh, Mr. Montesquieu, you have the floor.
2: (laughs) Excellent. Well, I can't do justice to the Baron, um, but I will say, I think um, if I may, uh, uh, Montesquieu, uh, the select committee will very much want to read my uh, Montesquieu's writings on the commercial republic in part because I argued there, Montesquieu, that um, the value of commerce to a republic was to soften men's moors. Now, of course, I, Montesquieu, was writing uh, uh, to men at the time, so let's uh, let's update this. Um, But the spirit of moderation, of compromise, um, the avoidance of hostility, the avoidance of violence, These are important virtues. They're not the only virtues, but they're important virtues in any republic. So too is the spirit of toleration, the toleration of Catholic for Protestant, for Jew, uh, of white for Black, for Native American, and others. And so, you know, I, Montesquieu, could not have written that important part of uh, uh, the spirit of the laws did I not believe that the virtues that um, are furthered by commerce, and I, let me gloss here to say commerce doesn't mean all capitalism. It certainly doesn't mean uh, you know, uh, the, you know, uh, the, the slavery-riddled capitalism uh, uh, that, that uh, suffused much of North America. Um, but uh, all societies have engaged in trade and commerce. Uh, And uh, what uh, Montesquieu argued about commerce and having those softening moors presupposes that this idea of having softened moors in a spirit of compromise, a spirit of tranquility, as the preamble of our Constitution uh, discusses, uh, in the spirit of true Republican virtue, uh, means that the kind of behavior that we saw on January 6th, and that maybe we see quite differently in airports and airplanes all over the country today, uh, or on our streets, it is simply incompatible with civic virtue and incompatible with what with what it means to have a democratic republic.
0: Professor Daniel Carpenter, Harvard University, thank you, sir, uh, for joining me today on the Public Morality. Much appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Byron. It was an honor to be here.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.